I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got electronic pioneers of a different sort. We're going to hear the complete Devo interview I did from 1987. This interview has never been heard or seen in print. They've just released the box set, 50 Years of De-Evolution, 1973 to 2023, and they've got a documentary film coming out, and they're touring the world. Because of the song Whip It, their hit single in 1980, and their ubiquitous video for it on MTV, almost everyone knows who Devo is, if you actually know Devo and what this band has really been about. In this interview, we talk about their beginnings, Pee Wee's Playhouse, and why they think Laurie Anderson stole their ideas. That's all coming up. If you've been wanting to represent Echoes by rocking out in Echoes gear, well, not only do we have the t-shirt, but lots of other items that have the Echoes logo so you can show the world where the chill resides. There's sweatshirts, hoodies, insulated mugs, and more. Go to echoes.org, click on store, and select new products. All kinds of cool stuff there, including a Christmas ornament, and that is coming up right around the corner. Go to echoes.org, new products right now. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S, dot org, O-R-G. They haven't recorded anything new in over a decade, and nothing for 20 years before that. Their most consequential body of work was at the turn of the 1980s where they presaged new wave music. But the artistry of Devo remains. Emerging out of Kent State in Ohio, they found their identity after the massacre there in May of 1970. By the time of their debut single, they had already produced several videos and the film. The truth about de-evolution, but it was a single mongoloid backed with Jocko Homo released in 77 that put them on the music map. I remember picking that up at 3rd Street Jazz and Rock in Philadelphia and playing it on the progressive music show Diaspar on WXPN in Philly. It definitely sounded different. Although they emerged out of the punk scene, they were not remotely punk, recalling the residents more than any other band out there. I saw them at the Hot Club in Philadelphia on their first tour, and they also looked very different, wearing their hazmat suits, playing guitars, drums, and an electrocomp 500 synthesizer. Along with bands like Ultravox and Magazine, they were New Wave before New Wave. Their sound became more electronic over the years, especially for their hit single, Whip It. That track is something of a lodestone, as it locked in the band's identity with audiences as kind of a novelty act, enduring that Diva was actually a subversive conceptual art project based in social criticism, and they've been recognized as such by critics and journalists. But they're also really funny. Why else would Brian Eno produce their debut album, Question, Are We Not Men? Answer, We Are Devo. Besides their nine studio albums as individuals, they've done several music videos, film, and television soundtracks, including Mark Mothersbaugh scoring Rugrats, The Royal Tannenbaums, and most famously, Pee Wee's Playhouse. The band are currently touring the world, and they've released a retrospective 50 Years of De-Evolution, 1973-2023. 
I interviewed the band in 1987. For some reason, it was never used in the totally wired radio show I produced at the time, nor did I use it in print, even though in the interview I said it was going to be in Electronic Musician Magazine, which I wrote for in the 80s and 90s. I talked to Mark Mothersbaugh and Jerry Casali in a warehouse-like space in Los Angeles. Late into the interview, Jerry's brother Bob Casali, who sadly passed in 2014, entered the conversation. It was pretty noisy, and some woman kept making announcements on a PA. It was a long way from Mutato Musica, their high-end studio in West Hollywood, where I talked to Mothersbaugh again in the early 2000s. It's a rambling interview, and pretty funny. So does Devo exist as a as a group? Uh, does Devo exist as a group? Of course. We've just kind of been in cocoon siesta land for a couple of years. Devo exists actually as as an idea. We'll get into that, <laughs> but but I'm wondering, you know, are there recording plans, you know, to come out under the name of Devo in vinyl or compact disc form or some form in the near future? Because it has been quite some time. Yeah, right now it's kind of not up to us, but yeah, we have all the plans in the world. Um, I mean, we have plans for a film, we have plans for a TV show, we we have plans for a uh, uh, like an off Broadway production. We certainly have record plans. We have lots of songs. We have uh, written over the past two years enough songs to fill a, a couple of albums. And uh, we do have a CD coming out that's uh, actually a collection of the Muzak versions of our first seven records that we ourselves did. That is, they're our own versions of our, our own Muzak versions uh, performed by us that we had made available to people through Club DeVoe which was the mail-order club that was connected with uh, the albums that we put out in Warner Brothers. People liked the music so well that a company in Boston, Ryko Disc, uh, asked permission to put out a compilation of the music versions of our, quote, hits and near hits. And we said, great. You know, we were happy to do that. So that's one thing that um, somebody's allowing. You're going to market it as a new age record? <laughs> we keep waiting for that new age for Devo it was always the new age <laughs> that's a funny word I wish there really was a new age <laughs> it seems like Devo has been uh, been writing about the new age since you since you started yeah we thought it wouldn't hurt to to uh, create propaganda for the, the possibility of a, of a better world Seems like the new age that has come about is uh, that people talk about is kind of the opposite of the new age that Devo was writing about, or maybe the new age that has come about is the new age that Devo was warning about. The new age is like Ford Escorts and other cars that are that are made in Japan and sold to us and work less good than the uh, cars that cost less ten years ago. So. The new age is a is a very wimpy age, a very reptilian age, where uh, justice is at the bottom of the list. That's the new age. I don't know. What do you think? I like that station, the Wave. Have you heard that? I love <laughs> yeah. I love their logo. <laughs> new station, no disc jockeys. It's like how, <laughs> how they promote themselves. <laughs> yeah, and it's easy listening music. 
uh, but but like semi artsy. You have been involved with the uh, Pee Wee Herman show, which is and that's kind of the first soundtrack music you've done. I mean, you've done cuts, songs, and films, but I don't think you've ever done soundtrack work uh, before that. For underscoring, yeah, that's right. How did that come about? Friends knew Pee. You know, we knew we've known Pee Wee for a long time, and. Uh, almost worked with him on a project about five years ago and didn't happen and then uh, friends with Steve Johnson the director and they when they were looking for musicians uh, my name came up you you composed this music to the film to the pictures that they had already or did, were you just composing incidental music and they plugged it in uh, it went both ways there was a lot of um, music that was recorded uh, uh, there was a lot of pre-scoring done because they were doing animation and some of the animation had to be, um, you know, cued to, you know, had to be accomplished to the track. So some of the stuff was done first, and but most of it was done afterwards. So they had to, are you the one who did that, Mark? Yeah. You, you, so no one else was involved with that? Well, uh, the two Bobs, Bob 1 and Bob 2. Bob uh, 2 engineered it and Bob 1 played guitars. Bob two and Bob one, uh, Devo. Okay. Um, did you find that it was maybe more fun writing the music that they had to cut to, or was it more fun writing the music to the images that they already had? Well, it was all enjoyable, just because uh, there was a real time constraint on the whole project, and after a, the first episode, it started getting uh, tapes on a Sunday. And so you'd write the music on a Monday and record it on a Tuesday and mail it on a Wednesday morning and you'd see it on TV Saturday morning. So it was kind of a nice in, instant, instant grat kind of thing. I saw you guys in 78. Um, you know when did you do your first big tour on the East Coast? Uh, 78. Yeah, at the Hot Club in Philadelphia. Uh, oh, yeah. That was, a, that was a very weird place. Very weird night. No, that was before we even were... Was that before we... Jocko Homo was out. I don't think anything else was out. It was just on point. a 45, uh -huh. right? There. Well, that was before even a big tour. That was just when we were in cars driving around. Matter of fact, uh, remember that night because um, the club owner, as a token of his appreciation, uh, treated us to um, Philadelphia uh, steak sandwiches and uh, a stripper after the show. We weren't, we weren't sure why, but... Yeah, and the stripper looked like the sandwich tasted. <laughs> was it like Hot Club or something that we played at? That was it, yeah. Where it looked like it was just like a, a downstairs of a house that they'd pashed out the walls so that the band set up in the hallway. Yeah, it was a little bit of a hee haw sat. set. Yeah. In fact, the stage had kind of two sides. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's yes, right. that's, that's, you were kind of like in the middle of things with people looking at your equipment in the backs of your heads. It was like potatoes in the round that night. I met one guy from the band that night. So a lot of people that go around seeing their Bob number one and Bob number two. It was one of the Bobs. I see. There is a there is a, a false Bob club, and as, as a matter of fact, our two Bobs are part of the false Bob club. The Bob imposters from. Our Bob from the Subgenius uh, Church of the Subgenius in Texas. Our Bob Dobbs. Yeah. Our Bob Dobbs, and they, Bob Dobbs is the only real Bob, but Bob Dobbs was killed. 
And now there are imposter Bobs throughout the nation, like false gods. And Bob 1 and Bob 2, they are benign imposters. They mean no harm. They've been sanctioned by the Church of the Subgenius. But there are a lot of Bobs that go around saying, and this is the truth, they say they are Bob number 1 or Bob number 2 from Devo. And it's been a, a real, you know, cause of consternation and thorn in our sides for years. I don't know how far I want to get into this, but there is a Bob Casal and a Bob Mother's Vow, correct? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's true. Yes, that's true. <laughs> um, when you're doing the, the Pee Wee Herman music, are you doing most of it on the Fairlight? Um, rolling keyboards and Fairlight. We, we was using a lot of S50, S10, and... JX8P. I was wondering what you found what made it expedient, because I know a lot of people doing film work, for instance, use the Synclavier because it's expedient yeah. for, them, for them to do it that way. And I was wondering. Well, I like the sounds on the S10 and the S50 just because they're real clean samples. But the Fairlight, my favorite part of the Fairlight's page R because it's, so, it's a great composing page. So we have a midied Fairlight and end up controlling other you know, keyboards with it. Now, this may seem like a foolish question, but you have the Fairlight that samples, you've got the Roland that samples, and you've got the emulator. Is that the emulator too? Or? Uh, it's and, just, uh, and we still don't have enough. <laughs> I, I have an ambivalent view of technology anyway, but the more we get into this stuff, and, and I'm always like second to find out about stuff because I, I'm, I always have a reticence towards learning. It bums me out, technical stuff. But this stuff... It's not gone far enough. We can already see where it should have gone, and it didn't go there yet. We had, just yesterday we were using it, and we, we had, uh, immediately we used up every possible available channel, and we had to lose things to put down other things, and uh, it was really inconvenient. It really took a long time to do one piece, because there are, uh, isn't the right setup. We need twice as many channels out of the Fairlight to begin with, at least. At least 16 to start with. It'd be nice to have more. And uh, we couldn't make the S, what was it, the S50? Well, Jerry, they do have MC500s and they do have 16 track Fairlights, but we just don't have them. Right. That's what I'm saying. We 30, need more. And 32 tracks and claviers. That's right. Right. So it's, it's just the, the tracks that you, that you find are It's getting like. so difficult. Yeah. I remember when we used to just have like a couple guitars and a couple of drums. We didn't even bother with cymbals and got it all done. Well, you know, going back to, to some of that early stuff, I remember you talking about, and I even maybe remember seeing the Optagon, the Radio Shack Optagon. Yeah. Optagon. What, what was, do you still use that? Do you still like drag it out sometimes? Or? Uh, it gets used for different uh, obscure things, but it's, it's, it's on that low tech end of instruments. You'd have to know it to. Appreciate it, yeah. <laughs> to, to love it's, it. Uh, it was used on um, the Muzak version of Beautiful World. It'll be on that CD, so the Optagon made it to CD. <laughs> Wait, what's the concept of the Optagon? What does it do? <laughs> the concept. The concept was um, the proletariat was going to come home from work, slip a disc in, and fall against this keyboard, and it would you'd have a whole orchestra playing Lawrence Welk music or polka music or whatever ethnic ethnic music he wanted and uh it kind of does that 
I mean, it has like those things pre-programmed into there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it has like a blues band that's playing a, <laughs> yes. a, a blues progression for you, and then you have accordion buttons on the left so that you can go through the chord progressions and add drum rolls and uh, uh, lead-ins. And I think they had everything. They had Polynesian pop. music. Oh, they yeah. had uh, bluegrass. Yeah. They had Cajun. They had everything. And it worked off of some sort of discs or something, optical discs. Yeah, optical discs. That was you know the same principle as. Um, film optical soundtracks they just went in a circle and so it just kept repeating and when you started out you were doing all this low-tech stuff you were putting things together yourself and now you kind of have all this high technology and everything do you find that the creative impetus has changed maybe since since that time when you know you were sort of discovering new things out of nothing and now you have these these high-tech instruments here that kind of have a lot of things on board for you to get into. I think it definitely changes the focus of yeah. creativity. And, and uh, you know, again, in my opinion, certainly not all for the better. Just a different, it's a different universe there with different criteria. And so much of it, to me, reminds me of, like, all the very expensive movies with special effects where the plots are stupid, you've seen them all before, the acting's bad, but people go away saying, great effects. Great, incredible effects. And that seems to be the criterion for most of that kind of music. I mean, when I hear Dead or Alive or the Pet Shop Boys, I'm just, I'm hearing, I'm, I'm just imagining them in the studio and I'm, not, I'm hearing the instrumentation and naming the pieces and how they did it. And that's all I can remember about it because it is a song or a statement or a memorable piece of music. It's totally not, it's totally forgettable. Yet that isn't why people are even listening to it. I think that that's like some other kind of criterion. In other words, uh, you know, look if you want to get pretty low tech, look at the Beastie Boys. And on the other end of things, look at U2. They're not high tech, and yet they're the most powerful rock and roll band in existence. Well, Beastie Boys are an interesting thing because... On stage, at least, they're not doing all that much in terms of their music. They have everything on backing tapes, as I understand. Yeah. They've got the one guy scratching. Well, Rick and Rubin created most of that music, right, Mark? I mean, that's, that, right. that's yeah. what I think. And it, it's certainly not uh, complex on any level, concept-wise, music-wise, or technical. Did you find towards the end of your touring that you were relying more on pre-programmed things at all, or were you still going out there and doing it in real time? Well, we used some pre-programmed things, but part of that was because uh, on our last tour we did something that had never been done before, and that is we thought, well, you know, Devo's been doing videos for a long time, and looking for somewhere new to go and something interesting to do, we did a, a devised a show where the first about 25 minutes of the show was... Uh, a backing film that was rear projected on a 15 by 25 foot screen of computer graphics that were in time with the music uh, because of the way we wrote the songs. We wrote them with, with uh, sequencers so that we could um, put a click track on a, on a film optical, a film or, mag, a mag stripe. stripe. Mag stripe and, and, it was uh, complicated and uh, between Mark and Bob and I, we figured it all out because nobody in this town had ever done it. And they thought, well, yeah, that might work. So when we were recording the record with Roy Thomas Baker, he had a special 40-track Stevens machine. Yeah. And so we took our 16-track Ampex in, and at the same time we would strike a master mix 
as he was mixing from the Maldi track, any given time we would go for a final mix, we would also simultaneously run these 16-track Ampex, taking the important effects tracks, sequencer lines, and so on from the 40-track song that we were mixing. And that allowed us then to shoot footage to the entire song uh, when we were in production for right. the visuals. We could, yeah, we could, in essence, we could be playing the songs as a band, but we could add on all the things that are only studio things because they would be in sync on, yeah. on the that, film. But, that, but what we did is things like we put backup vocalists so that we wouldn't have to sing them on stage. We could do things like have like a 15-foot uh, character come out on the screen and sing backup vocals, and which that was did. on the mag track, and he'd but chase so. us around the stage, and everything was perfectly in sync every night. Right. But the only reason that was possible is because we did the mix of the effects tracks onto the 16-track machine simultaneous with the master mix, which then allowed us to shoot footage to the master mix that would automatically sync up to those effects tracks because they went down in, in real time simultaneously, just on a different piece of tape. Uh -huh. And so we had a sync track. We had a 60-cycle pulse. And it was no problem with film technology then to put it on a mag stripe a six-track dubber, as it's called, because there are six tracks available. And that syncs up mechanically to the film projector. So we would hear a click track, and then sequencer lines come through our monitor system, and we would play to it. The drummer would hear it. We would all hear it. The audience didn't. We played live, and that, that way it allowed us to theatrically interact with the screen because we had already designed it conceptually to know what we were doing at any given point. We didn't have to look at the screen. So uh, the, the end effect was like a 3D video game because uh, the, the screen had images on it that were in scale with the band, not just in sync with the band. And Mark would like blow up uh, computer dancing girls like in a shooting gallery. And uh, we had r uh, traveling road sequences where everybody would run in place and uh, explosions and everything else that were uh, all theatrically designed to punctuate whatever song both content-wise and color-wise, that we were playing. People loved it. Critics hated it. You know, I suppose if... Uh, what did the critics say? Well, one actually used the word goddamn, but he said, if we wanted a goddamn video... But he spelled video, it G-A-W-D, though. God. Yeah, if we wanted a goddamn video game, we would have gone to an arcade. Come on, guys, we want a concert. <laughs> well, you're not fooling us. <laughs> That's interesting because when you think about it, someone like, say, Laurie Anderson, who is definitely a critic's darling, I guess. Uh, she did what we did. Kind of. Kind of. She did the same idea five years later, and Warner Brothers paid her uh, up, upwards to a million dollars to put that movie out. And all it was is, is a Devo show without the entertainment value, but with the same exact idea. Without the entertainment value? Well, that's my opinion. <laughs> Getting back to Pee Wee just for a second. Are you doing sound effects stuff as well, or is it just yeah. all music? Uh, well, a lot of the cues I was writing just turned out to be sound effects, too. So they would wait and put any additional sound effects, like footsteps or any of the normal things. They'd wait and put all their stuff on after the uh, scoring so that, you know, there wasn't a lot of overlap. Now, he's. Are you still in production on that? He's finished the first batch of shows. Right, that's right. Uh, next one doesn't go into production for a while. And will you be involved with that? I don't know. 
another, Maybe. another one of those things. Well, what happened with Warner Brothers? Why are you not? What happened with them? Did um, if if you could find out, we would uh, we would be very happy to know. Did you? They just not renew your contract, or? Oh no, we had a contract. We uh, we mutually decided to leave because um, we didn't want to be somewhere where people weren't going to support our our aesthetic. And it, it became obvious they uh, made a decision at some point that Devo wasn't in line with what they wanted from their company. And they did have, you know, uh, Madonna, Prince, and uh, the talking head, so maybe they figured they didn't need to deal with Devo. I don't know. But we, uh, we spent a long time making Shout, and the heads of the company heard the record in various stages made suggestions and decisions that we cooperated with and then just proceeded to second-guess themselves and change their mind after the fact and we'll never know because uh, as is typical you know if, if people hear this or think about this they're in the business they'll know that I'm telling the truth when they when I'm telling that the band are the last people to know what what's going on because uh, there seems to be a compunction among people in business to decide the band is either A, idiots, or B, troublemakers, or both. And they can only talk to their ilk of people, managers, lawyers, other business people. You don't talk to the band. You you should not be candid with the band. They're either heroes or villains, but it's after the fact. And I, I we don't know because no one ever communicated with us what the problems were. I'm kind of surprised that you would even be interacting with the label in that way because I always thought of Devo as someone who went off and you 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 put your stuff together and you just handed it to them and uh, and that's what they got. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why it. that's why we don't know what happened because it was only management that dealt with them, not us. As a matter of fact, uh, that's not Devo at all. What you just described, but that was certainly the the image proffered to the public from the beginning because that's what the public prefers to think too. And in business, they don't like the band having personal contact with the record company, supposedly to protect the band. But I think there's, there's another hidden agenda for it. Because Devo, we're, we're not like, um, you know, devolved drug-taking idiots or room bashers or, you know, crazed maniacs, idiot savants. We were quite the opposite. And maybe people found that threatening because we did all our own business in the beginning and we are articulate and we do know what we're thinking and we can we can communicate fully uh, any given idea. Plus, we could accept honestly if somebody said, look, guys, the promo men just aren't on you for this record, okay? We'd just like to know it instead of they think it's killer, and then you go to a town, you can't find the album in the bins, and the radio station says, what are those guys doing there after you've been set up for an interview? And they're looking at you through the glass like, hey, look, we don't have time for this. And these kind of embarrassing situations happened all the time because we were being lied to, and all we ever wanted was the truth because we could take it. God, I'm starting to feel really bad now. <laughs> well, why do you say that? Hearing this story. <laughs> I'm feeling really bad about it all. God. That's that's what happened, huh? I don't know. This is these are some things that happened. On shout to a lesser degree, uh oh no, it's Devo. This, if you look at say go from new traditionalist to to shout, quantum leap or in in the sound, 
not not necessarily the music per se, but but the sound of the music, the, the technology that was being used. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, you have no idea how many manuals for instruments that are outdated I have locked in my subconscious. I have I see them in nightmares. I've seen see manuals for sequential circuit profit fives and all the different revs and mini mogs and uh, poly boxes and things I don't even want to know about. You don't want to know about them because you don't use them anymore. Yeah, it's that kind of information where uh, next lifetime that I'm a musician, I'm just going to get a harmonica or something, stay with it. Yeah, I would like a chance to go out and do a, a live show with all the songs that I think are great songs that we wrote and make them sound like three or four times better than they do on the record. Why would they sound better than they do on the record? I, I think, well, I think they would because there'd be a there'd be a power there because we'd have to adapt them to a live situation. So you'd have both the high-tech sounds and the rock and roll power. And if you recorded it multi-track and then sweetened and mixed it, I think what you'd end up with is the best of both worlds and you'd have a, you'd, you'd have a recording that would, would reflect the, uh, the energy behind the song better. That's what I think. I think our live record was our best sounding record. Yeah, the one we did do a long time ago, people loved it. I don't think it ever got released in the U.S., did it? Um, like it's, maybe an it's an EP. It maybe 10,000 or 20,000 snuck out or something. Yeah. I don't know, some small amount. But it sounded great. Was that was that a radio station thing? Or was that? I don't yes, know. Originally, originally, yes, originally it was. It was, it was a Warner it? Brothers, um, what is it called, the... Uh, not King, I don't think it was King Biscuit Flower Hour. It was uh, something like Westwood that. One, or and we distilled it down. I mean, because that show was like an hour and forty-five minute show, and we distilled it down. We put out a, a record in Australia, and there it went platinum. Right here, they put out an EP. The EP sounded fine. Had the whole intro to the show that went right into Whip It because. Uh, we designed shows for shows, and uh, unlike most people that saved their hit for the end, we didn't care about that. As a matter of fact, I think when we designed the show, we had no idea Whip It was a hit anyway, so it didn't matter. But uh, <laughs> Whip It started the show after about a four-minute kind of, uh, what would you call In, that kind of music? Intro, uh... But yeah, there's a, there's a perfect name for that music. Uh, it, was, it was regal, royal... Uh... Sexy. <laughs> Prelude music, or... Uh... No, fanfare? It was, it was a sexy, regal, pomp and, royal pomp and circumstance, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was a real flag-waving intro. <laughs> but how did, on Shout, a lot of digital technology, you were using samplers a lot. Almost, you don't really hear analog, at least not the way you do when you go back to New Traditionalists and the earlier records. How did that change the music, getting all the, all, involved with all the digital technology, and especially the samplers? You spend all your time doing that. But how did it change your concept of the music? It got a lot more complex in terms of how many polyrhythms were going on and, and uh, how many changes, because it's all written in a, in, a, in a machine. So when you're doing that, you change at different points than when you uh, let your body make those decisions. And that definitely changed it. So, I mean, the complexity factor went way up. I'm just not sure how... How successful it was in terms of uh, the end pleasantness of the recording. Yeah, you know, I don't know, I don't really know if this is how uh, valid this theory is, but I think there's something about digital sound that's related to chemotherapy. 
I don't know. I don't know what it is. Have you ever hung around a chemo board? There's something similar. There's something similar in the air. I don't know how to describe it. You mean sounds lose their hair when you I, I go so. digital? I think so. Uh, I think digital, yeah, I think a lot of digital music is going to make people lose their hair. So what are we doing here amongst all these uh, radiating instruments then? Well, <laughs> we're masochists. <laughs> what are we doing in L.A.? <laughs> what are you doing in L.A.? I, I talked to this new age musician the other day. And he was telling me how L.A. is, West Coast in general, L.A. in particular, is conducive to this kind of music, new age music. And uh, That's because all the equipment comes here first because we got the big connection with the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> but he was talking more about the environment and everything. And I was thinking, you know, the p other people are here like Zappa and Devo and you know, certainly none of whom are, are, are new age. And Akron does seem almost to be a more apt place for you to be in certain regards. No, that's a good place to be from, if you see what I mean. They don't want us back there. We don't want to be back there either. Although property values are really great back there. Not as great as they are here. Right? No, what I'm saying is you could live oh, like you could a live king. Cheaply. You knock two zeros off the, off the cost. Average price of a home, and you got a, you got a complete farm in, uh, in, in Bath, Ohio. <laughs> Seems like New York would be a more apt place for you to be, though. When I think of a place that you know Diva would be, uh, I would like to represent. Be, I would like to be in New York. I just never figured out how I could live there. It was too expensive. Why did you pick "Are You Experienced" to cover on on the shout? That was a decision the record company made, and we went along with it. And why did you change that one line? Well, we had to do something to update it. Uh, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Jimmy not, wanted it that way, I think. Yeah, Mark consulted the uh, Ouija board. No, you know, not necessarily stoned, but beautiful, really. Just has no context in the new age, does it? But uh, not necessarily... Beautiful. Mu but mutated is more like it. <laughs> Figure 20 years from now when somebody does a cover of our version, not necessarily mutated, but we'll, we'll wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> but reconstituted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I but listen, def defending that, I I listened to it recently, and and I really think it's great. And somebody put it on my message machine, and it sounded so fantastic over the phone. You know, I was thinking that might be the way for us to like. Uh, to to like um present our albums next time it's like just a lot of phone a nine seven six number yeah uh -huh. I think that's a great idea I really do and I'm sure somebody's going to do it if we don't you know instead of selling records all we'll do is we'll just you know like collect list nine seven six numbers yeah we collect quarters every time somebody you, calls you, you figure know. you collect quarters from three million people you want to hear a Devo uh, song you don't have you know you don't have to go to you don't have to have a record player you don't have to have anything all you have to do is have access to a phone booth I think it's a great telephone. idea but, plus. Not being facetious at all, that's an idea we talked about. And I'd like to to know what the possibilities are. We'll probably find out there's something illegal about it. But uh, you wouldn't have to worry about radio programmers then. You wouldn't have to go ask Lee Abrams to play your record because it, you can go around radio. It's right on the phone. It is true. Our songs sound much better over the phone. Somehow when they get compressed, it's... Are you experienced sound tremendous? It, it sounded just like what I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know, well, I've got several questions now. Just, just off. Well, first of all, with, I mean, with fiber optics happening more in, in terms of telephone, that's supposed to be, you know, incredible fidelity and everything. Seems like that would almost be a natural way to to go to go with that eventually. That people will, you know, you'll you'll pay, and you'll you'll be charged by the phone company or mm -hmm. something every time someone calls up your thing, and people just tape your records well, <laughs> over PT, the phone you know, line. I'm figuring PTL Club's got a deal on about two thousand used telephones now, and I was thinking that'd be a way to do the concert. We could just go up on mm -hmm. stage, you know, everybody comes in, they sit in like a driving seat, movie. They come into a seat, pick up a phone, dial nine seven six. Yeah, and we're I off. like that. And there'd be no sound in the theater. You just watch a screen. Uh, that's one thing we could do. <laughs> I'm sure that may not be at the top of the list, but I will consider it. Well, the other thing I'm surprised you said the record company suggested because I I like I liked your version of that song a lot, and I thought uh it was a great updating and devofication of of that song. Oh yeah, we wouldn't have done it if we hadn't liked the song. It was just that they said, look, after the album was all done, they said we're not. We're not telling you we're rejecting this album, but we'd like you to do something else if you know what we mean. And we go, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, how about if you do a song that somebody else has done, you know, a cover? Well, you've always done covers, though. I guess that's it. We, we yes, we, we asked for it. So the only thing we could think of that was up there with the other ones we had done, a special point in history was, uh, are you experienced? Now, is, is the concept of devolution still something that you guys talk about? We, we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me sad. <laughs> it's so true. We, it was just a, it was an art posture. We had no idea that it was really going to happen. We really didn't. If somebody would have told us, and, or anyone, for that matter, out there, uh, if anybody told you in 1976, okay, here's the way 1987 will look. Here's what will be going on. We might have invested our money in drugs instead. <laughs> Who knows? You know, I mean, I don't think anyone, and including yourself least. right here, would have believed that this is the direction it would all go. I mean, if the, you know, if this is the new age, give me, give me the old one. I thought it was... Uh particularly perverse that you have inserted themes from Giacomo and Mongoloid into the Pee Wee Herman soundtrack. Yeah, that was like the last episode, just put a little signatures in. <laughs> did, did you tell people that you were doing that? Was that like an after-the-fact thing? Well, it was great. They, didn't, they never censored what I did. They just let me do it. They had so, so little time that anything I sent them, they put on the show. Those songs probably got heard, or those themes got heard by more people during that one episode than probably ever heard the the originals. And they'll never know what the hell the originals were, probably. You were very unhappy, I recollect, with the production of your first album. We were just extremely idealistic. You know, we, we wrote an album, took years to write, and uh, we had a very set idea of how it should sound. And, uh, yeah, we really wanted it to sound great. And we had this idea in our heads, and it wasn't coming out that way. At the time, we didn't know enough about how to get it. And it's frustrating. You're always unhappy when you're frustrated. You always feel like something better could have been done, or if you'd only been able to do this, you know, the, the woulda, coulda, shoulda syndrome that's always so horrible. And uh, in retrospect, it's not so bad. 
I listened to it recently and it sounded, you know, it sounded pretty good. I'll I, tell you this, it does have a sound. That's the important thing. It does really have a, a sound. And I think it gets back to a thing where when you're in when you're in it and you're too close to it, you, you it's impossible to step back in the midst of the moment where you're on the spot and it was our big, big break and our big creative outburst and uh the point is the, the the energy and the intent of the songs uh, was probably something that could not be it was immutable it couldn't be destroyed i there probably could have been uh, a dozen ways to record any of those songs that that would have made them equally successful or unsuccessful but the song because of how how um necessary the whole aesthetic was and how real it was at the time i don't i think they they stand up anyway. It is what it is. It couldn't have been anything else in the final analysis. It's just five celibate guys who hadn't planned on being celibate while they were in Germany, that's all. Brian had told us there were all these beautiful women in, in Neunkirchen. And when we got there, there was like a flock of sheep next to the barn at Connie's place. You, you've been to the studio, right? But they were beautiful and they were women. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were pretty straight then. Mm-hmm. Pretty straight then, as opposed to now. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you got me. <laughs> uh, but you know, listening to that album, and you had, I think you had four singles out up to that point for the Stiff single and three independent singles. Uh, well, there were two independent singles, and Stiff re-released both of them, and and plus a third one. That's what they had done. On Boogie Boy Records, we had put out um, Jocko Homo and Mongoloid. Then we put out Satisfaction backed with Sloppy out here in California on Boogie Boy Records. And then they took those, reissued them, and then they put out Be Stiff backed with Social Fools. And do you have all the colored vinyl versions of the first album? I think Mark does. Maybe. I don't know. There's stuff keeps popping up all the time. It's fun when the record company's India. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get more than you ever bargained for. Yeah, of stuff you didn't even want. <laughs> yeah, I was working in a record store at that time, and that was the height of the colored vinyl craze. I think you guys pushed it over the edge with that. Well, we didn't. You know, we were going, "Give us money for a video," and they're going. You want money for a video? What do you think? We're made of money here? And then So then they put all they're spending all this circus money records, yeah. Yeah. You know. You can have circus records, but you can't make a video. At the time videos were certainly not popular. We were more or less single handedly creating that uh demand. Although there was Bowie with uh David Mallet and there was uh Russell Mulcahy in England early on doing it as well, but we weren't aware of that in nineteen seventy six. Yeah, the only thing good out of all that kind of stuff of people doing things without asking you is that they put two posters in Europe in the first album. And uh, I had a guy come up to me a couple years ago at a, a club in L.A. and said he was a defector from Russia. And while when he lived in Leningrad, him and all his school friends, there were about 20 of them in this gang, and they all had Devo posters on their walls in Leningrad. And they were like, they were into our albums and followed us as That's best That's true could. revolution, friends. <laughs> You've always been involved with film more so than any other bands and it's been sort of integral to your whole development. You started that at Kent State, right? In fact, that's kind of how the band started out, yes. out of a film. Yeah. Yeah, we had a we had a friend that uh, owned a 16-millimeter camera and uh, 
we had a big idea to make this film and scrape the money together from a, believe it or not, a graphics store that uh, Mark and I tried to run in a uh, in a downtown Akron mall. <laughs> <laughs> the, if if you would have come in there in 1975, you would have seen a Boogie Boy poster for $25. <laughs> Next to a Fonzie poster for two. And, uh, it we, was great. Yeah, we paid for our first, um, our first film, The Truth About De-Evolution, uh, by selling rubber stamps for 50 cents apiece. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty ridiculous. But we did scrape the money together to do that first film. Well, what was it like... You know, the concert I saw at the Hot Club, I know you showed the films, but I came in right after. I remember. But what was that like when you, when you started doing that? You would open your concerts with the films, if I'm not mistaken. What, did, what were the reactions you were getting from people? It was the ultimate warm-up act. Mm -hmm. It led one uh, big-time record company executive who will go unnamed saying, to say, look, why don't they just extend this film and not show up? <laughs> because at the forum, the people were absolutely going nuts literally they were standing up cheering you know getting very rowdy throwing things at each other while the just because of the films before we ever came out and so when that screen would go up and we were right behind it with no break it was a you know it's a theatrical trick that's really good for you you know well, part of your using the film seems to be and especially on your last tour where you were interacting with with the film it seems to be a, a breakdown between reality and unreality sure i mean we were always telling people a story that's what we were doing and we were giving them information and you're we creating our own little world with characters and problems and the film really helped explain like biographical data that would give you a, a, an understanding of the songs and once we put it together, then it stopped being so gratuitous, you know, to stick it up front. It, it became really substantively integrated. And we, we just wanted to go on from there. That was just the beginning for us. When we finally got to do that idea in 1982, it, it the idea itself was five years old. It was the first time we ever had enough money and enough cooperation. If Mark and I would go take everything we did in 82 and do it for somebody else's production, like a David Bowie or the Cars or something, everybody would go, incredible, magical, far out. Because now it would be acceptable. It would be fine. Everybody knows that's cool. When I pitched this article to uh, Craig Anderton, I don't know if you guys know him or not. He's, he's the editor of Electronic Musician. Yeah. Yeah. Said, you know, he jumped right on it, but he said, yeah, you know, those guys never got the credit that they deserved. Ah, he knows what to say. <laughs> it's true. It's, I mean, I, you know, if anybody was being honest, they'd have to know that's true. But again, we've been told by a, another wise record exec, what do you expect? Don't you know pioneers get scalped? Well, that's true. Right. <laughs> Enough said, bro. <laughs> the Devo music seems so calculated and designed to to have an effect and it seems kind of depersonalized or outside yourselves did you feel that way at all no i mean maybe you're talking about the the end result that is the form like let's say a painter throws paint around like like a 
you know, Van Gogh and scrubs it onto the canvas and somebody else carefully uses pointillism like Seurat. And maybe at the time they said, this guy has feeling and Seurat's a technician. But when you look at the paintings, you realize that you get, must separate out the, the particular uh, style or technique from the content. It, you know, both of them had feeling. I mean, they were different feelings and both of them have withstood the test of time. I, we, I never thought what we were doing was impersonal at all. In fact, it was maybe too personal. And, and the techniques, however, would lead one to believe, you know, if you were just looking at the form, that yeah, that's what, you're, that's what we're up to, what you said. But in fact, it's not true at all. We were always trying to use technology to comment on depersonalized, soulless culture. Yeah, I'm not sure that, you know, when I said impersonal, that's not, you know, quite, quite what I meant, but you sort of answered it anyway. So you have, you have an ambivalence about the technology that you're using. I do. <laughs> yeah. It's the idea that's more important. You know, we don't care if we're making robot sounds with a vocoder or we're making, a, you know, hyena laughs with a fair light. It's the ideas that are important. The reason I liked the technology is I thought that we were going to be, make, be able to make more special, more highly personal, more expressive, more exciting sounds. Sounds that would be more original and unique. Um, because I, I remember at the time when, you know, when we were first writing songs in 1975, 76, we would think and describe these incredible sounds. And we would have these visuals that went with them. And then we would spend a long time with the only thing available at the time, which is Mini Moog and, and some outboard equipment like the Mutron 3. And we would spend all day trying to find the sound, you know, that we could imagine. And we always thought, well, if they would hurry up and make this stuff, you could think a sound and you could make it in five minutes and express yourself more directly one-to-one -one, right out of your brain. That isn't what ends up happening. I mean, there's more, you know, again, there's Prince's When Doves Cry was more close to what I thought would be what we were doing with our technology than, than, than shout. Because I was thinking that with the samplers, the way you are sort of critiquing the world in a way with a lot of your music, that with the samplers, that would be even better when you can actually pull sounds from the real world. Right. Have we done that? I mean, he's right. Yeah, we have. We, to some extent, we have. Yeah. Where do you think you've done it? Uh, well, probably in the samples that are used in Pee Wee more than, uh, uh, you know, than in our Shout album, which is what we uh, first used samplers on. But, you know, we're getting, you know, banks of uh, sounds and we're collecting things now ourselves. But I thought you meant because the sounds you're pulling have associations in the in the culture, and then you put them into the context of a song. That's what I thought you meant, which is not, has nothing to do with, with Pee Wee. And I was just trying to think if we've done it, because we should be doing it. We did something like that on Fourth Dimension, the song uh, on Shout, where there's a uh, reference to Day Tripper, and then there's Beetle Whoops, you know, from, from the early Beatles songs, a sample of a woo. And that's minor, but I mean, that's, you know, that's the beginnings of it. And nobody picked up on it or said a thing about it. 
Well, I find with a lot, a lot of people who are really involved with the technology that the really interesting things that they're doing are are buried. When you take a look at like avant-garde music, the technology is right out there, and you know what they're doing with. In fact, the pieces are about the technology. When you look at things like coming out of Ericom, John Chowning's place up at Stanford, and it's obvious, you know, they can like talk about it. And on the show, I can play an example, you know, from the music, and it's like there, it's obvious, everyone can hear it. When I talk to, especially more pop-oriented musicians, they're doing things that are on the same level, but it's it's so integrated into the music that it's, it's not it's not as obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, pop music's as straight as it's been in a long time, and you know you have to be more subversive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with him. It's like that's that's the unfortunate thing. I mean, like the Beastie Boys to me are the ultimate straight group. Believe it or not, I know they're presented as uh, what is packaged and sold as subversive, but it's the opposite. They are not at all. They're, they're good old American boys doing uh, everything you do in the tradition of faked rebellion where it's the right to smoke cigarettes and the right to, the, the right to uh, swear and the right to pull down your pants and the right to break TV sets and hotel rooms. and It's like old hat. It's a ridiculous rehash of, of uh, what, would you, what would you say? I mean, it's like, it's like fake rights. Who cares? writes about nothing that's important really um there's nothing new in the music there's nothing new in the sentiments of the lyrics Uh, there's nothing new in the way it's done on any level there there is a certain screaminess arrogance to it i think that i mean they've taken that to a certain a new level in a way that's oh exactly sure it's a place to go but they've taken it (laughs) it's it's a popular place to go that's what that's all we were saying is that yeah it's very straight music's very straight would you like to join us here? Um, I'm Jones. I mean, I'm here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this is Bob number two. Yeah. Bob number two. Hi. Hi. Would this be accurate? That Devo is kind of presented as a product? Yeah, that's pretty honest. That's kind of uh, what we are. We're an idea, but we're presented as a product. That's true. I mean, that's that's what entertainment entertainers and uh, bands and um, really are. It's something we never denied, unlike a lot of other people, you know what I'm saying? Well, well that's what I'm saying. Not only did you, you not deny it, you kind of glorified it in a way with that whole list of things that you... The that merchandise. The merchandise, the hair, the Wrapping t-shirts. ourselves yeah. in yellow plastic that looked, made us all look like McDonald's cheeseburgers. I can't believe you made money off of those products. Did you? You're right, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we we always had problems with the people that ran our fan clubs. They sold fine. We just didn't make money. Oh, they did, the, but they did sell well. Oh yeah, yeah. And, we and sold someone lots made of money. that stuff. <laughs> someone may have made money, yes. Yeah. Because it seemed to me you had so many products. It seemed like they were out there as more part of the concept than part of you know. When when I look at most fan clubs, I can say yeah, that that's product, and you know they're trying to make extend the image of of the band. Yeah, make a buck, and yours seemed to be involved with the whole concept more so. And, and we were just supplying them with the icons that they wanted. Exactly. Uh, you know, we, we finally had to do it after there were enough people stealing our yellow suits and our red hats off of our heads and out of our dressing rooms. When, remember in England one night after a show, we had to chase people down the streets because they'd broken into the dressing room, stole all our outfits for the we're rest of the tour. Our only props, right. You know, we for the tour, like we had to run out and get them. And, you know, people were making bootleg 
bad-looking versions of our stuff. So we thought, well, we better put out official versions. You've had a lot of producers. I was wondering about Robert Margolef and, and what it was like working with him because he had worked previously with uh, Stevie Wonder and Isley Brothers. And was that one of the reasons why, why you began working with him? Because he had that... The R&B connection, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we we were looking to do kind of um, electronic R and B with that record, and he seemed like a logical choice to work with. Were you familiar with his work with uh, Tonto's expanding headband? Yeah, well, we, okay, I admit it. We wanted his autograph. That's why we worked with him. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you know that album? Yeah, it scared me. <laughs> That's a great record. I mean, was uh, did you like that music? I bought that the same day I bought Oscillations by uh, Silver Apples. Silver Apples. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although I've got to tell you something, Oscillations. We got to go back and listen to that again. I think that there's a worse. lost direction there. There's definitely some tunes to be resurrected there, possibly. I think you don't want to use their equipment, though. I, I saw um, the synthesizer that uh, Tonto used. That uh, Malcolm Cecil's um, giant Moog setup that's like an inverted eyeball where you're inside, you know, you're inside a globe. And, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's so low. I mean, it's so old and gigantic things to do one little note and stuff. Well, they were doing uh, vocoder stuff with no vocoders. They were doing, <laughs> doing voices, you know, they'd have both of them controlling the synthesizer at the same time. One, like doing the filters, one doing the envelope and everything, get, getting those things to speak. Yeah, he told me a story about uh, they devised the first polyphonic uh, synthesizer, and the guy, the engineer that was working with them was so paranoid about people finding out how what they did, he covered everything with epoxy on the circuit board so no one could copy it. And <coughs> about a month after they built this synthesizer, all the epoxy started to... Uh, warp and all the uh, it just it just pulled all the circuits. I mean, all the uh, capacitors and everything on the boards right out of their sockets. And so they had this synthesizer in no time that was trash and uh, never made a second one. Sounds like art. Should be in a museum. <laughs> so silver apples is that is that roots music? For that's Devo? heavy stuff. Yeah, that's roots music for Devo. I, I really, I think that's our new direction. The more I think about it. You know, Silver apples are bringing me down. That was yeah. Beatnik love poems over minimal electronic electronical <laughs> tracks. <laughs> I, yeah, it's got to be a sense of humor. Because those guys, boy, those ultra primitive, just oscillators and stuff. I remember the pictures on the insert. Oscillations, oscillation. Yeah. Well, it's all happening again. <laughs> the lyrics were really good too. That that's. Your music always, in, even in the beginning, had a kind of a mechanized feel. When the technology came along to allow that mechanical effect, is that something that you welcomed? Like, was it like, oh, great, now it's here, we can we can do it with the machines like we wanted to? Well, it took some of the fun out of it because you know it's, uh, you know, it was really hard to to sound like a factory. You know, you had to work harder at, at making those industrial sounds. You know, when it was all human generated. Have you watched Max Headroom? Uh, I know who he is. I never watched yeah. the show. Yes. You watch it? What do you think of that? Oh, I think it's, you know, I think it's admirable. I do. I, I ask you because I find a certain Devo quality in the blurring between, you know, the, the technological world and the real world, you know, the computer world and, and the real world. 
Well, see, like in a film that we'd been trying to do for five years, Boogie Boy was going to be um, a computer-generated character married to live action and running around in some real 3D space, you know, real live action picture. And uh, I like the approach they used with Max because they they found a cheap way to do it, which was a, a Devo way of doing it. And it, it looked like something we would have done under different circumstances and maybe could still use in a different way. I mean, the technique they used with the actor, uh, I forget his name, the Canadian guy mm -hmm. that, that uh, is Max, is in fact Max. But I just think it's a good show. It's really well done. And for all the faults I can see with it, it's only because now I'm an adult. But if I was 16, I'd like it the way I liked Star Trek or The Prisoner or Batman or anything else. At least it's imaginative programming and it's really high level. Now, how long have you had the Fairlight? Oh, uh, since 82 or 83. So it was pretty early on. Yeah. How did you find out about it? Did, had you... Uh, I have um, a brother who used to be, um, used to work with the band, his uh, uh, technical engineer, and then he went over to Roland and, and works over there in um, uh, their engineering department. And uh, he was like always keeping me up to date on what was coming out. And he recommended I should, we should check out the Fairlight. And we'd been hearing them on records and found out it was actually pretty easy to operate. And how many times have you used Orc 5? Orc 5? We've never used it. No, I think uh, maybe it, it got used in Pee Wee and that's all. I've heard it on Pee Wee quite a bit. I don't know if it yeah. was the sections you Yeah, that's right. It's always the salesman at the door. Right. Did you do that part? or Yeah. That's, that's here? <laughs> and so you've got the emulator and the S10, S10 and S50. What's the difference between the S10 and 50? S10 holds four samples, S50 holds eight, and it's a lot more sophisticated of the two. So it's, is it the update? Uh, they're not, no, they're, they're very different. They use different disks. It's actually, um, that was kind of one of the faults in, in the two systems is that they... They made sure of this. They should have uh, <laughs> sure had them uh, so that they were compatible and they're not. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, because you have to buy two. I think what the the idea was is one was supposedly going to be aimed at a lower budget market and the other one at a higher budget. But now the S50, they've gotten gotten the price down on it very low. So it's almost kind of, uh, you know, the S10 is almost kind of useless in a way. Are you composing into the computer now or are you playing it out or how, how, are, you, how are you doing that? We almost always compose right into the computer. Using the terminal or, use, or playing, playing it on the keyboard? Uh, both. How do you find that affects the music, doing it one way or the other? When would you, do, when would you use the terminal versus using the, the keyboard? Whenever you needed something really uh, unhumanly tight or unhumanly fast. But for the most part, uh, or if you just want to have the same snare hit, you know, 60 beats in a row and not have it... Uh, you know, change at all. And do you use conventional instruments anymore? Yeah. Yeah. Still using guitars and still using guitars, guitars. bongos or anything. You know, because I mean, real conventional instruments sound different than than all the digital instruments. Well, thanks a lot. Anything you want to add? Let Devo make a record. Yeah. Well, I, I can't believe you guys haven't. I can't believe that someone that was around as long as you guys were and who had the impact and. And had the sales and had, you know, everything else. Now you're making me feel sad. I'm sorry. Quit it. 
That was a pretty wild interview that really takes me back. I still don't know why I didn't ever use it anywhere. I will have a link to Devo's 50 Years of De-Evolution 1973-2023 in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. If you want to ensure interviews like this in the Echoes podcast and the Echoes radio show, make a donation to Echoes on our website, echoes.org. Just hit the support tab at echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S, dot org, O-R-G. We definitely need as much help as you can give us. I'm John DiLiberto, and this has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.